Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building. You're setting yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march or demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches never changed anything. Warm weather plus a growing homeless problem are leaving local libraries in the lurch. Good evening, I'm Yenji Denise. Paula Akana has the night off. The homeless are finding ways to beat the heat just like the rest of us. KITV4's Paul Drew shows us things get complicated when they show up in local libraries. Well, Yanji, the summer reading program may be over, but summer weather keeps people flocking to the state library. That includes Hawaii's homeless who have turned it into a personal hangout as the days heat up. In the morning, when it, when we open, they're, they're out, there's lines out the door, and then they, they come in. On this day, the majority of patrons are homeless, and we're told that's typical during the week. 
We usually go in the library and hang out and read a book. Reading isn't the only reason homeless head inside during these hot summer days. Well, they got air conditioning in there, and it's some place that you can go that they won't kick you out. It's a cool, dry place with a bathroom. Visitors and residents periodically use library resources or check out books, but the homeless often hang out for hours, some reading, some sleeping, while many log on to the library computers. A lot, a lot of internet use. Sometimes they're just circling, looking for an internet. Computer use is normally limited to an hour at a time, but if no one else wants it, then patrons can stay put. But that daily demand by homeless users has some feeling put out. I wish they had more computers. Usually, many times we gotta wait. Along with that problem, library staff hear complaints from people about the disrupting smell from some of the homeless or the hogging of the bathrooms. Now, some simply stay away. We do hear that there are people that don't come anymore because of, of that problem. Libraries can't bar homeless from coming in as long as they're quiet and courteous to others, just like everybody else. Everybody can come in. It's, and we, we do have house rules, and if you obey the house rules, you're welcome. Many love the library, and that's why some are sad to see it turned into a homeless hangout. There's no place for them, and there are people too, so they, they deserve to have some place to go. I mean, but not necessarily the library. Now, the problem may be most noticeable at the state library, but other libraries have also been affected by the daytime influx of homeless residents. The state doesn't have a dollar amount on that daily impact, but says each branch has had to make adjustments with resources to make sure libraries still run smoothly. About four million people visit their local library every day in the U.S. Some have nowhere else to go. The American Library Association can't put a number on how many homeless people are using their facilities as shelter, but many cities are struggling to address the problem. In San Francisco, where more than 7,000 people are homeless, the city decided to take an unusual approach, placing a social worker inside the library. The NewsHour's Cat Wise has our report. A line of people recently stood outside San Francisco's main public library, waiting for the gates to open. Then the crowd streamed in. The library draws patrons from all walks of life, but on a typical day, about 15% of the 5,000 visitors are homeless. In that regard, San Francisco isn't unique. Many urban libraries serve as safe havens during the day for the homeless. But here's what is unique about San Francisco's library. Hey T, I just want to ask you about the housing. Is it still available? Because I have a couple of clients that I might prefer. Meet Leah Escara, the nation's first full-time library social worker. Escara was hired in 2009 to do outreach to patrons in need of social services. I think one of the advantages of having been here for six years is that I've become a familiar face at the library, so people know me. And actually, it's interesting, even on the streets, they go, you're the library lady or you're the social worker. Escara is well acquainted with the city's large homeless population, many of whom hang out near the library, which is steps from City Hall and the gritty Tenderloin neighborhood. Before coming to the library, she worked at a nearby community mental health clinic. These days, she seeks out many of the same kinds of people she helped in the past, but in a very different setting, amid books. I always say that it's easier to do outreach on the streets 
because it's a neutral territory. You can just approach people. But here it's, a, it's their safe place, it's their sanctuary. So um, we try, I try to be very respectful. My way is, hi, I don't know if you know that there's a social worker at the library. I don't say that I think you're homeless, but I just say, you know, we have these services. If you think you might, you know, want to know more about it, I'm available, I'm always here. Much of Escare's job entails providing information to people about where they can access services like free meals, temporary shelters, and legal aid. But when she encounters an individual who meets specific criteria, including being chronically homeless with a physical or medical condition, Escara's role changes. I sit down with a person. That's when being a clinical social worker comes in. I do the full clinical assessment, and then I make a presentation to my colleagues at the San Francisco Homeless Outreach Team. They provide case management and also housing. In fact, since the program began, about 150 formerly homeless library patrons have received permanent housing, and another 800 have benefited from other social services. But not everyone, even in liberal San Francisco, is supportive of the homeless presence at the library. One particularly irate patron recently wrote a review on the main library's Yelp page. Can you please, please, please kick the homeless people out? They are disruptive in the stacks leave their garbage, stink, body fluids at the desks. They use the bathrooms as their shower facilities. Inappropriate use of library facilities by some patrons, including the homeless, has long been an issue in San Francisco. Last year, after encouragement from the city's mayor, the library implemented a new code of conduct with tougher penalties. But some advocates feel the code unfairly targets the homeless, such as rules against emitting strong odors and bringing large carts or luggage into the library. There are times where uh, security or whatever their library police, they, they're not always that friendly. Brian Andrews is one of those upset by the tougher enforcement. He says he's been homeless for 10 years and often comes to the library to use the restroom because he doesn't have other options. I need to go to the restroom, and granted the library has signs posted saying you can't shower, bathe, whatever, and I understand and appreciate that, but at the same time, it's like I, I'm on the street, and what, what can I do? Luis Herrera is the head of the San Francisco library system. He says the new rules are not targeted at any one group of patrons and the library wants to support everyone who walks through the doors. Urban libraries are one of the most democratic institutions that, that we can have, and we welcome everybody. 99% of the individuals uh, come in here, use the library uh, respectfully for its intended purpose, but we're always going to have that small percentage that, uh, that has some problems or some issues. I really want us to do some really major outreach. One of the ways the library is trying to make it work better for everyone is by putting more eyes and ears on the floors. I had an outreach I didn't tell you about yesterday. He's 35 years old. He's homeless. He's been homeless for two years, but there's no chronic illness or nothing like that. On the day we visited the library, Escara was meeting with Jerry Munoz and two other staff she had hired known as health and safety associates. All three are formerly homeless library patrons themselves. And now, after turning their lives around, they're trying to help others do the same. This is our basic community right here. We deal with all kinds of people. You know, a lot of retired people come here and stuff. But I, like I said, I look, I look for people with a lot of bags. That or the people that are asleep.
Munoz, who's 54, lost his job and home six years ago when his son passed away unexpectedly and depression set in, followed by substance abuse and health complications from diabetes. He spent nine months homeless on the streets of San Francisco, but he now lives in subsidized city housing. And after receiving special training from Mascara, he patrols the library floors during his three-hour shift, five days a week, looking for anyone he thinks may need help. Excuse me, brother. Not allowed to sleep in the library, all right? I'm sorry. No, it's all right. Hey, here's a, like a, a place where you can sleep during the day. I talk to him and I go, oh, I slept under the bridge. I did everything, you know what I mean? And, and I let them know I know where they're coming from. It makes them feel comfortable, then they know that they have one person they can connect with. For her part, Ascara is soon planning to hire two new formerly homeless outreach workers, and the program will be expanded into San Francisco's neighborhood libraries in the coming year. I'm Kat Wise for the PBS NewsHour in San Francisco. Okay, today's podcast is uh, titled One Room Schoolhouses. One Room Schoolhouses, our live stream number. It's 619-768-2945. Now, I'm reading on Wikipedia uh, about social workers. They say social workers work with individuals and families to help improve the outcome of their lives. And, of course, that, you know, that includes a lot of the terms. It includes directing people where they can get clothing, shelter, um, you know, medical um, things of that nature. Uh, of course, housing is, is a, a big, big issue. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, a big issue with that. I'm going to play this next audio and then go back into um, how one-room social, I mean, our one-room schoolhouses is where the ball is going. Hi guys, Jenna here with Tiny House Giant Journey. Today I'm at Westminster College in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, and I'm going to show you a tiny house that's built completely by students. Let's go check it out. Take my Hi, my name is Justin Wilson. I'm a Westminster College student, and this is the Westminster College Tiny House. One interesting thing about the Westminster College Tiny House is it was built by students. Um, not all Westminster College students. Some students were from the Newcastle School of Trades. Every Friday we would come and we'd help them build stuff. They, they kind of gave us the easier stuff to do because they knew we weren't, you know, tradesmen or anything like that. One way that the borough let us keep the house here is to say that students could live here for a short time. Uh, it had to be academic. They're going to start tying in classes to the tiny house. So I met with a, a class last week. Uh, they are going to be a theater class, and they're trying to figure out a way to do a play inside the tiny house, whether it being outside or like viewing in from the windows. And that's one thing I think that makes this, this tiny house unique is that not only is it a living space, but it's also an a- academic space.
have a lot of debt when you leave any college. Coming into a tiny house, you could actually kind of fit the stuff you have from your dorm room in a house and kind of just live a more simple life and cheaper life. And I mean, you can move to places, so you don't have to stay in the same place forever. So it makes your life kind of flexible, especially if you have a flexible career path. So I'm actually about to move into this house. I'm going to be the first one ever. I really want to kind of work out the kinks so I can help the students that are coming in next to kind of get an idea of how they can live in here and have a successful time. So this is the inside of the Westminster College Tiny House, or I like to call it the Dub C Tiny House. Um, this is the couch. It actually has a lot of storage underneath. So you can pull that out and have stuff stored under there. And it also pulls out to be a mattress, a full-size bed. I definitely want to have a a game night, a Monopoly night, or some, I'm more of a life kind of guy, I don't know. We'll see, we'll, we'll pick which game we're playing. Right. Uh, we have our heater right here, a propane heater. I know these, get, these guys get pretty hot, so excited about that. It's nice and warm here in Western Pennsylvania. The staircase um, actually has storage built inside of it, so you can kind of keep everything you have so you don't, you don't have to hang stuff. You can kind of just fold everything and put it in there. Um, I have a lot of shoes, so I plan on, you know, trying to use most of this to fit some of my shoes, um, I'm trying to cut myself down to a certain amount of shoes while I move in. Um, so this is yeah, this, the stairs are definitely one of the most unique parts of the of the tiny house. Um, they're, they're a little a little steep, but you need that. You need to have you, you need to save space. So this is the bathroom. Um, I'll step over here. We have our nature head composting toilet that we has not been used yet. It's gonna be fun, I think. I don't know. It's, it's kind of a whole new journey for myself. Um, this is the sink. We got a full size sink in our bathroom, uh, works and everything perfectly fine, uh, and then we got the shower, we got a nice towel shower, uh, regular standard size shower, uh, hopefully I don't look like elf in this <laughs> shower, I don't think I will, um, I mean, it's about right, the right height, so. You're definitely moving in, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited, I'm excited, I think that, you know, being, I'm honored also to be the first person, uh, four years of college, never thought, I'd be the first person moving into this tiny house. Even before I move in, everyone's like, so do you live in a tiny house? And I'm like, yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> so. When I first saw this, I'm like, this is the coolest part of the house is the sliding door here. You don't see a, a barn door every single time you go into any house. I mean, it's, I think it's awesome. So the kitchen, um, one of my favorite places in the house. Uh, I like to cook. My, my mom always cooks, so I like to cook. Uh, we got a crock pot, which you can basically cook anything, and you could do anything. Uh, we got our stove top, electric stove top. Um, we got some nice drawers for, you know, holding different appliances and stuff like that. Um, we got your working sink. Uh, it's a little small, but I think, you know, it's a tiny house, a tiny sink. Uh, hopefully we get some tiny dishes. Uh, we got our nice rack here. Um, got our refrigerator that is an electric refrigerator. We got our microwave, but the plans are to get a toaster, toaster oven. Um, we'll see. I basically really only cook for myself, so I really don't need that much. I've learned just living in apartments and stuff to like, you know, save space and kind of, so I think it's going to be a little bit smaller, but I think I'll be okay. So this is the loft up here. It's actually carpeted, which makes it nice, so I think, you know, makes, kind of makes you feel a little more homey, a little warm. Um, this is the bed, um, just a standard twin size bed. Actually, I think it's a, a tall twin size bed. If you like to sleep in small little areas, I mean, it's cozy. How's this compared to a dorm room? I bunked with a with a few guys last year, and this is this is more room than I had when I was bunking with them. I mean, there's a few nights you know you hit your head and just like fall back to sleep and just forget about what you were trying to do. So, <laughs> are you worried about anything moving into a tiny house? I think one of the strangest things is going to be is going to the bathroom in the composting toilet. That's a flush. So, I mean, there's a little twisty thingy that you know twists it. 
uh, kind of mixes it around, I guess, the mixer. But I definitely think that it's a, it's a good solution for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, but definitely for young people like myself who are trying to push their career forward and, you know, don't want to have to pay like $2,000 in a mortgage every month. Or I don't know how much a mortgage. I haven't paid one yet. So <laughs> just being around this tiny house makes me kind of even want to live in one after college. I think if you want to live a cheaper lifestyle, but still live in a nice environment and still be very comfortable, I think a tiny house is the way to go. Hope you guys enjoyed this video. I think it's fantastic what young people are doing in the tiny house movement and it can be a real solution for alternative housing for people coming straight out of college. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe and until next time, I'll see you guys later. And that last audio, um, and you really probably need to take a look at the video. That's where the ball is going. Some college students got together and built their own tiny house dorm room. Now, add a Wi-Fi connection to that. Because these days, you can, you can get a law degree online now. You can get virtually every college degree online. Um, you have people now that are graduating college before they even graduate high school in some cases, or well, nearly at the same time because of the Internet. So, like I said, that, that audio right there, that's where the ball is, and that's where it's going. I, matter of fact, I, I can see some colleges, the traditional college campus as we know it. Um, matter of fact, what you just heard, that's the new college campus. Because if you go to um, and pick the college of your choice, off the top of my head, I believe the tuition at well, as a matter of fact, let's get accurate with this. And people, uh, people out there, you can uh, volunteer with this as well. Look up, just think of any college off the top of your head, and find out what the tuition is. Now, the two, you'll see where I'm going with this. Now, if um, let's take Howard University. Howard University. Um, tuition. That's what I mean. Okay. Howard University tuition 2017. Okay. Cost of attendance in Howard University. Uh, this is for undergraduate. Uh, living on campus. Um, let's see. $12,000, $12,061 per semester. There's a matriculation fee. Uh, let me get the total cost. Okay. The total cost for a year at Howard University is $43,501. Now, out of that, 
Books and supplies, fifteen hundred dollars. Because they itemize this. Uh, housing costs out of it, it, it comes to eight thousand nine hundred and forty-two dollars. You can build a tiny house for that, or you can buy one and let. I mean, if you, if you don't want to do it, you can buy one. Because the tuition is $43,501 per year. So you can buy one. And what do they say on here? Now, the books and, t- the, the books and supplies is 1500 bucks for the whole year. So if I were a parent or even a student, I can buy my own books, and I can enroll online, and I can cut out I can cut out all this other fat and attend Howard University online for a fraction of this forty three thousand dollars. Any event, segueing to the one room schoolhouse. That's what we'll be doing in part uh, starting next month. We're going to, we've got the land and um, we're going to put uh, our first three buildings will be a one-room schoolhouse, as President Seven suggested yesterday, a one-room schoolhouse, uh, or a tiny house which will act as a one-room schoolhouse. Um, a guest house, uh, which you can also call a dorm, dorm room, and a library. And of course, it'll be all wired to the internet. That's where the ball is going. So you got kids, grandkids, or even if, if yourself, those are that. Now, going back now. Linking this to the first two audios I played, particularly the uh, the one before we went to the uh, the college kids building, they built their own dorm room, via tiny house. Social workers, um, and I had the definition of social worker here, uh, which we all know what it is, but I found the definition that fit a little bit better. Okay, here it is. Social work. Uh, is work which involves giving help and advice um, to people with serious family or financial problems. Now, typically, and like in, in a, as in the, the audio mentioned, there's a, a, a San Francisco has a, a in the public library social workers now or a social worker. I'm gonna try to get it on this podcast. But. Uh, very soon, uh, hopefully within the next week or so. However, um, to traditional social worker, which is a government employee, or a social worker with a nonprofit, um, they direct you like if you need clothes, where you know where to go get clothes at a pet store. Um, I've had social workers call me over the years as a landlord 
because they were calling on behalf of somebody who was in a shelter and was trying to get into a, a room or a house or an apartment to rent. Um, you know, they know where, you know, if you need shelter, like they can direct you to a shelter. But a lot of these people that social workers, the traditional social worker, be it in a church or a government-paid social worker, that's basically where social workers work. They either work for the government or for a nonprofit. We're more like for-profit social workers because at the typical shelter, the, the missing component, in my opinion, with government-based social work and nonprofit social work, and the reason why a lot of these people on social on social services and get help from social workers end up back at the social worker's office because they're missing a key component and a really empowering component is teaching people how to start their own business, which includes financial literacy, and how to build your own house without financing. And three, this is the most important part. Social workers essentially don't teach you anything about how to build and maintain social capital. Typically, people that end up in a shelter or at the social services office uh, or receive some type of social service like welfare, Section 8 housing, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, typically, those people are socially bankrupt. They can't go to a friend and get five dollars for a big Mac because they they don't have any social capital. Even for, to get a big Mac or, or, or a small fry. So in our one man school, a one room school, excuse me, because there'll be several people that participate with, is teaching people about how to get and how to maintain social capital. Matter of fact. Another good example is, and he's a polarizing figure, but I'm going to use him and people in this social sphere, Donald Trump, President Trump, or 45 or some people call him. He's a billionaire, and they're, they're probably less than, as a matter of fact, now let, me, let me get the statistics, how many billionaires in the world? Billionaires. Uh, In the world. Okay. All right. Uh, According to Business Insider, there are 1,500 billionaires, 1,500 billionaires worldwide. Um, And they're mostly concentrated in about 14 countries. The prime, I would say the number one asset 
of why a person is a billionaire would be they've got social capital. They've got social capital. It's, for instance, if, let's say, um, a billionaire wants to throw um, a $1,000 per plate dinner for some cause or somebody running for office. They get, well, I don't think people use Rolodexes anymore, but they have a social network that they can do that. They do a lot of social things, play golf, dinners, lunches, happy hours. They've built that social network, and that's where they get. That's where the money comes from. Now, there's some other things like you know they, they have to be. It, it also helps if you're in a non-regulated field or whatever. But you know, look at check, check out the movie. Uh, what do they call it? Um, the Social Network. Well, Mark Zuckerberg. Now he was. He's not really portrayed as a nice guy in that film, but essentially. Facebook, as we know it today, was basically a bunch of friends that got together for for a website. But I would recommend watching that movie, The Social Network. But what they did was they, they built it. They built a website, and it was originally meant just to be for students that attended Harvard University, and then. And up in Boston, and then it just, you know, Boston's got a lot of colleges in the Boston metro area, and it went from one university to one university to eventually went global. Now Zuckerberg, I don't even think the guy is 30 yet, multi-billionaire, with a website. Same with Yahoo, um, Google, Social Capital. Let's get together. And do something. And they didn't have a whole gang of people to start to do that stuff. So, um, in any event, what we'll be doing is, like, say, setting up, uh, you know, our, our library, the first three buildings, library, um, library, one-room schoolhouse, and a guest house. And that will be the nucleus for us to build on a daily basis in 2018. We're not going to start off that way, but hopefully we can reach it in six months. Uh, we can build nine, excuse me, one to five houses per day. And we're going to have to, like say, educate Social work, the type of social work that we'll be doing, which is the missing link with the typical social worker, is the educational component. Along with that is the social capital component. You got those two. You got the know the know how, along with the social capital component of you know the let's say as Pleasant Stephens you know says. If you got 18 people, you got two crews of nine. But but those 18 people are going to have to be special people. In other words, they're going to have to be able to work together. We're going to have to educate them on how to do that. 
And that's that's one of the things missing at the social services office. They do not teach you on how to get along and work as a team and work with others. And that's why a lot of those people end up at the shelter, back at the shelter every three months, every six months, or definitely every year. So things like that, that's what will become our, 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 one, our one room class classroom. It will probably stick better with the children. Because um, some people, they, you know, <laughs> you just can't change their mind. Um, but education, that's the key thing. In any event, uh, 773, Pleasant Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? You explained that, explain that very well, very, very well. Yeah, you know, that social capital is the way we got to where we are today. Because around the country, because of my travel, we were able to connect with a lot of people. So, and that's the horse that carried it. That carried the load is social. And the library is another component of bringing a lot of people together. The school is a component to teach people how to get along and to do the building. And right. the showers, all that accommodation, they will be there every day to uh, fulfill their dream because they've had no one to actually give them a plan that they can follow. So you did a very, very, very good job this morning of explaining the social capital is how it works and raising money. And the other component that I, I, I'm looking at that we'll be adding is that, uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, hourly wages? Let's go back. Yeah. Let's go back and let's go back and look at something that occurred for three, four hundred years. There was something they called shotgun houses on practically every plantation there were. Right. Shotgun house didn't have anything but a kitchen and bedroom and a hallway. That's all they had because I've been in many of them just to see what they look like. And they some still exist today. They do, yeah. If you were to take those shotgun houses and break them up into tiny houses, Look at what you would have, because they, what they was doing was accommodating people to do what? They have shelter, they have food, and how to go to sleep and wake up and go to work. That was it. And they didn't get paid. That was the other problem. If they had gotten paid, they would have had a big house on the hill, but they didn't get paid for the work that they'd done. Then I was looking at some documentary uh, last night. Of Minnesota, uh, not Minnesota, but uh, where's that state at? The steel country, where they, they they made a lot of steel, so they all steel. So Pittsburgh, you talking about Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh? Yeah, Pittsburgh. Black folks that works on the that work the people that work on the furnaces to melt down the steel were black people, but you never hear that. You never hear of what they had to do. And the other thing that I found, there is no record of how many black people fell into the pits. So 
I went back in and uh, looked at how many people did my family to lose. My father had a brother to walk off to go looking for a job. My mother had a brother to walk off go looking for a job. Neither of them returned. Why? Never heard from them again. Ku Klux Klan catch them and kill them? Did they find them and work them to death? Or did they find a job on the railroad or some other facility that they worked and didn't get paid? They did not return home. So those are the kind of things that what we're doing is to prevent anybody from wanting to leave and walk off and not return. So what we're doing is education, housing, and teaching people how to be self-sufficient and have a vested interest on top of that in a capitalistic system. Nobody has been talking about having a vested interest in a capitalistic system. And the other component that we are going to be uh, uh, installing is solar energy. So that's another uh, a, a monthly return so that they don't have to pay a, a monthly uh, utility bills. So that frees up a lot of money right there across the board from, from Ditko. So what we're doing, uh, Brother L.A., we are bringing a change to the world in the way we live and the way we have lived because our people have never been taught. The library with the Internet connection, the school, the books that's going to be written with the truth, how to make a living with a, a live in a tiny house, because there's no need of having a six-bedroom house. Of course, I, I was raised in a eight-room house that my grandfather built, and he built that house with no nails, none. The, the house stood on its own independently because they would cut the notches in the logs and lay the logs on a log, on a log, on a log, and each one of those would support the other. And that's where I was born. So having the knowledge that I have, I want to spread the knowledge that I have so that everybody will have a chance to live uh, bank-free in a house. Neither of the two houses that uh, I, w- I grew up in, the one I was born in and the one that we built and totally old and down at some point, we had no mortgage because we had social capital throughout the community. So that's, that's pretty much I want to add this morning. But you're so, so on track and explaining it so well. Anybody can get the message that wants to live uh, uh, bank free, and the schooling process. I've got I got some uh, relatives of mine, and I got some that's going going to start the college this next semester. That is so true. But if they take that route, talking about, they won't come out of college in debt. They'll come out of debt free. We can get their parents line and do this. They will come out of college free. They won't be paying a thousand dollars a month for their child to attend school. No, no, they won't. 
And then they would also, when we're talking about here, the one room schoolhouse, they would get be getting a daily dose of what they have to do to survive in a capitalistic system. That's what we've been talking about for years. So, yep, you're on the, you're on the right track, Doctor. I, I, I applaud you for that. You are on the right track. Okay, well, let's see. This is podcast 999, so Monday we hit 1,000. It's my house podcast. What we're going to start doing, uh, Monday we're going to have, hopefully, Melvin Harris back on. We want to take the example of what he did converting the shed into um, a rental property um, in Texas. So we want to, we, I'm going to have him back, but at this time I'm going to have him break down cost-wise um, uh-huh. because essentially we'll be doing the same thing. We'll be um, taking sheds because a shed will give you a basic skeleton uh, to work with for the library, the one who's, uh, the one house, I mean the one-room schoolhouse, and the guest house. So a shed gives you the yeah. basic skeleton. Um, so that you save time with that, so save time and money with that, and we want to get the basic cost because um, we're going to have those those three buildings, but um, we're going to need an income. So almost it's simultaneous as we do those three first three buildings. Uh, or at least put one up, we're going to have to probably do about four or five more that we um, sell. I don't know how it's all going to fall into place. But anyway, we're going to have him, uh, hopefully have him here Monday. Either way, we're going to start putting figures on it because um, with all three, you're going to have um, a bathroom. Now, the guest house, the guest house will have a, a full bathroom, which includes a shop. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But the technology that um, we've talked about before, because uh, using a trucker's technology for a kitchen and bathroom, or people that yeah. have you know that have boats, that's affordable mm-hmm. now. Matter of fact, um, let me get it. if you go to Amazon. Um, Let's see, Amazon and get a, let's say, um, flush campers toilet. Because a lot of people, you know, that will be dealing with, you know, they they, they might not, they, well, they're not a, the compost thing might not be them, but they know about flush toilet, right? So I'm looking at, an outdoor, indoor travel, camping. So, in our bathroom rooms, um, and what we're setting up, I mean, I'm looking at, and they got a bunch of them here, but I, I, just on Amazon, I can get an in, a indoor, outdoor. It's called potty outdoor, indoor travel camping. I come over, but you can yeah. flush with water. It's sixty, seventy bucks, mm-hmm. sixty nine ninety nine. That's right. Another one costs sixty six bucks. Uh, one costs one nineteen, another one's ninety nine, a hundred dollars. So we'll have that in there, so people can actually see and use that type of technology. Uh, they also have showers, 
a matter of fact, pleasant explain what you had in, in, in your um in your rig when you were uh, driving. Well in my rig I had a shower, I had a microwave, I had a TV, I had oh much mercy. I had everything you got in the house. I had a refrigerator, a small refrigerator that was sitting up on a shelf. And I design, I designed my uh, truck the way it was comfortable for me. Well, two of us could sleep in it because my wife went on a few trips with me, and we stayed out a couple of weeks. And two of us could sleep in that camp, in that uh, in the bunk comfortably. So I had every thing that you need to survive, and I had a hot water heater overhead. I had a cold water heat overhead, and they were joined together in the middle and went around the cab, the the cab of the truck, so that I had plenty of water for flushing the toilet, cooking, washing up, taking a taking a shower, and then when I got to a place where I could run my hose out to a facility that uh, was water at a truck stop, I could fill them up again. So. When I was going down the road and I had to lay over someplace, I could go to the dumping station and a, truck, and a, and a rest area and uh, wash them out, dump them out. So it's a, it's, it's a real simple factor. It's a, it's a real simple process that we have to look at how inexpensive it is to live. Because I don't think that I spent over... $5,000 in my sleeper, somewhere in that range, because I wanted the amenities of all the comfort I could get. And I think I spent somewhere in the neighborhood of five grand. And when guys would see my truck, they would say, man, who did that job for you? Well, like you say, look at the things that I put in it. It's not that expensive. Not at all. Because a lot of the stuff you're going to hang on the walls and you're setting your truck on air rides and you're not going to tear it up. So it's 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 pretty easy to do. It really is. Right. I we'll also have, uh, yeah, and all that, yeah, so we'll, we'll have that technology in here. And Clint was talking to a guy a couple of nights ago. He was, uh, when he was uh, over in Saudi Arabia, he said a lot of people over there, um, have solar showers. Now, here's how simple a solar shower is. Is, you know, some of these homes would have, you see a tank on a home. And, of course, Saudi Arabia has a lot of sunlight. So, naturally, black tanks, the sun, it heats up the black tank. And then you got hot water to take a shower. Or wash dishes and do what you want to do with that hot water. So, we'll have... Um, that type of simple technology on, and all these things help because, like I said, a lot of a lot of people who go to the social services office, um, even if they do have some type of social capital, uh, they don't have the financial social capital because they borrow from everybody to pay this bill and that bill. But if you, you know, take solar showers use solar to light your home, then you don't have a utility bill for electric or hot water. Then you can start to get ahead of the game. 
So that that's why the one room school that that'll be imperative. You don't that there's no shelter I know because there are some ministries out here that are building tiny houses for people, but they're not teaching them how to live sustainably and the te- the appropriate technology to go along with that tiny house. So some of these people are saying, well, you know, it's um, let's build a tiny house and give it to poor people. But if you don't teach them how to keep that house uh, and the things that go along with it, like, like the basic things for hygiene, you know, it's not going to work out for them. It's not going to work out for them. I'll give you a good example. You, know, you have in you know this what? country Section 8 people that all they have to do is pay $5 out of their pocket a month. The government pays less. Do you realize that every day of the week, well, at least Monday through Friday, there are people that get evicted out of the Section 8 program, and all they had to pay was $5 a month. You know what we did? What I didn't have when we started out? I didn't have anything but the beepers. When the beepers came out, uh-huh. I, I didn't have a telephone in my truck until later years, about 15 years ago. I had to go to a truck stop to make a phone call if somebody beat me. And I ran that beeper oh, for, what, 20, 20 some odd years after I started trucking. So these things has came to to uh, our convenience today. It's where you can be in your truck driving and make a phone call, and then you got the GPS. Where I used to have to use the Atlas, and I wore many Atlas to get to your destination. So the convenience today is all it has to do is be taught and implemented. Right. Because it's at it's at your fingertips. And if you're taught, you can implement it if you plan to get above the ray of being poor. Because you can cut your cost of living into less than half. You're right. right. We have another caller here. Uh, 352, your mic is open. Uh, Good morning, uh, L.A. Good morning, Pleasant. Uh, This is Viata. I was just—I heard you talking about the tiny house. Uh, You know, one of the first questions you have to ask for people who want to build or live in a tiny house is, "Are you ready?" Because so many people are addicted to their stuff that you can't move into a tiny house with all your stuff. So, I think the first stage of tiny house living is to ask, "Are you ready? Are you ready to give up and be a minimalist?" and to uh, downsize and, and let go of all your clutter. So that well, might be the – in the library, I'm going to have an ebook on um, downsizing as a bitch coming out next year, and it will be covering, you know, the mental and psychological aspects of living in, moving into a tiny house, how people have to be ready to let go of things before they even think about doing it. Well, a person that's in a shelter – or the only homeless person, or even a working homeless person who has transportation, has a job, but homeless that ends up in that library, they're already minimalist. Right, not, and they don't want to become a, a clutterer in the house, now. too. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of them are not minimalist by choice. But due to the fact that 
they couldn't pay that storage bill where they yeah. got all their stuff stored, and then some then the storage house auctioned it off, or you got your house foreclosed on, you got evicted. That I mean, they got kicked off the grid. So essentially, they got forced to become members. A lot of them don't catch that. A lot of them don't. They don't realize that's that's really a blessing, because they go when they get back on their feet, whatever you call that, they go back and get more stuff. So really, don't yeah, you know, uh, my, like, they're they're addicted to stuff. My when my sister was uh, battling breast cancer, she had a storage. She bought all her stuff from Chicago to Florida, and she put it in a storage. And it was costing her something like two hundred dollars to keep that storage unit. So her money got tight, and she didn't have $200. She was begging the church that I was going to to help her save her storage, even though that was all she had. She was begging money for money, and the church gave her $200 to keep her storage another month. And then she died like two or three months later. And like two or three weeks, a month before she died, she said, you can get rid of my stuff now. So, you know, it's like to me that was a powerful lesson about sometimes people will be, have one foot in the grave before they're ready to let go of their stuff. So it's a, it's a well, process. I, I understand that it's a process of helping people, and it may not take place until they're, all, they're in the, almost in the grave. That's In my sister's case, that's what happened. She didn't want to let go of all her memories of her daughter and all the life that she – and I understand that because her daughter was killed, and that's what triggered her breast cancer, but it was like – it was like pulling, really pulling. Trying, she had her hands glued to that storage until it was time for her to leave her body. Well, most people in this country um, are addiction addicts. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking uh, exactly. about drugs and alcohol, but they're addicted to stuff, <laughs> like what, yeah. like you just illustrated. So, um, and that, that's what drives them to the poorhouse. Drives them into bad health, drives them into bad relationships because they were addicted to stuff um, and uh, they don't know how to, do, you know. Well, once again, they're going to have to get re educated because it's the miseducation that has gotten people um, in, in, um, in, in this, this uh, financial bondage, so to speak. It, you know it. Uh, so that that'll be part of. It. I, I'm glad you'll be writing that book on how to downsize or whatever. Because some people they have to be ready for it, but a lot of people uh, that um, a lot of people that are going tiny, they're not going tiny because they want to. It's because they have to. Yeah, they see exactly. the writing on the wall. Right. You know, some of them are looking at retirement. Some of them might be be retired, um, but in decent health. Uh, some of them have lost jobs, uh, and they just woke up and said, "You know what? This is a, that's why the tiny house thing is so popular right now. It's and it'll continue to be. It's because it's a viable solution, and it's not that expensive." Well, particularly if you build it. Now, you bought it at a reasonable price yourself, but you don't have to get into a 30-year mortgage 
or even a 10 or 15 year mortgage. A lot of people go into this stuff debt free. So, and, um, and you know the the traumas and tragedies that people go through, in my opinion, are meant to help them change their lifestyle, their priorities, their values. And and a lot of people don't get that. I was talking about that on my show this morning. Change, go. I'm changing the world by changing me. Okay, so we have this violent world we live in. We have Trump divide, div, tweeting away to for div, and dividing us even more. And so somebody has to change. I don't think Trump's going to change too too quickly. So guess who has to make the changes? We do. We have to look at Trump and say, well, uh, do I want to be like Trump? And a lot of what Trump is doing, we we have that in us and to some degree. All these people tweeting all day and on social media all day. And then we got to change our values if we want to change the world the way it is, all this violence and bombing countries and and living in McMansions. McMansions, there's a bunch of McMansions sitting empty now because people didn't want to change their values. So uh, going into 2018, we have our work cut out for us, just helping people see the need to change when their life is turned upside down. Well, there's some good in Trump. Here's where the good I see in Trump. A couple of things. Number one, no president of the United States has any influence on your daily livelihood. Your your mayor might, but the president of the United States basically has very little or no impact on your daily life. And then looking at Trump's now, I go up family, family Trump's family tree. His father, because if you look at how this whole thing, the Trump organization started, it started with his grandmother and his father. His father well, well, even his grandfather, I, I watched a documentary on Trump. Uh, his grandfather had such a strong uh, work ethic that he created his businesses out of nothing. You know, if you, have you seen right. that documentary? His grandfather, you have to admire the man. He came right. over here from another country, and he built up his business from just observing opportunities everywhere, all the way across the country, Colorado, everywhere. He's looking at all these opportunities to start something. So I think Trump is has that same, you know, mentality of his grandma, well, yeah. just starting businesses and doing what he can to make money, and now people hate him because <laughs> he's a billionaire and well, he's running, trying to run this country a different way. Here's the takeaway I have from Trump, all right, and it's all related because I'm not into his politics, directly from his family. If you go to his, because his father died, his mother, grandma, uh, grandma did him, let's see, Trump's grandmother took over. Then his father, Fred C. Trump. Now, this is, in my opinion, this is his grandfather was a mustard seed. But here's the origins of where uh, mustard seed to billion. His father, Fred C. Trump, at 15, took something on carpentry. Then he built his first house and sold it. But before. New York City was developed. Um, up in Brooklyn and Bronx. Then he got a cookie cutter. And see, this is where the one-room schoolhouse, the library, and the guest house thing come. That's our cookie cutter. Fred C. Trump built single-family homes and sold them for two... No, he sold them for $2,995. But he did it over 29,000 times. That's 
lays the fortune that set up Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, when he grew up, Donald Trump helped build um, some of those houses. So he, he learned, he was actually in the trenches. And, you know, he just, now he's passing off to his kids and grandkids. That's generational wealth. But the, the audio that I play on here quite a bit, I know some people are sick of it. We had the solar cabin guy, Lamar. He built the house, a cabin, for th- what, what uh, $2,000. That's how Fred, that's the origins of the Trump empire. And his son-in-law, uh, Jared, if you look at his family, which they're on the same level as Trump, they did the same thing across the river in New Jersey. But they weren't they weren't buying million dollar buildings. They weren't buying or building a thousand dollar a hundred thousand dollar homes. Once again, Fred C. Trump sold. Now I don't know what he built them for, but he sold them for two thousand nine hundred ninety five dollars. But he did it. That was his cookie cutter, a house that people can afford, and he did it twenty nine thousand times. So the one-house schoolhouse, the tiny house library, and the tiny house guest house, that's our cookie cutter. You do that 29,000 times, and you don't have to worry about money anymore. That, that's the takeaway I get from the Trump family. He can, he can be a carnival barker. I don't care about his politics. I, that, that's the golden nugget I got out of the Trump family. And that's why I play that 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 uh, the cabin thing because he built it for two thousand, and then the solar system costs three thousand. So we're talking about five thousand. So you build five thousand dollar homes, and there's a whole bunch of people out here that need it. That's essentially what Henry Ford did. Henry Ford built an affordable car. He didn't buy. He didn't. He didn't build. And his name, last name, wasn't Rolls, because Rolls, you know, Rolls was making cars back then too. But with the assembly line method, which is basically going back to what President's talking about, Ford basically set up the assembly line thing, and then to this day, he has shifts. So at Ford. You know, you're 24 hours a day and three eight-hour shifts. If you got people working around the clock on three eight-hour shifts and you're selling an affordable product like he was doing with the Model T, that, that's keep it simple. Now, President, I'm thinking by the end of the year, we need to have three-hour shifts. <laughs> you already thought, or you, you you, you thought, like you said, you're absolutely right. You got one building and nine beds. But let's look at they, let's look at Akron, Ohio. Huh? Let's look at Akron, Ohio. Akron, Ohio, with Goodyear, started to making rubber, and look at what the rubber market is today. It's on everything, including an airplane. Just rubber. Then, then tires. And Firestone caught on to it, and look at what they're doing. Because if you don't, you know, that's the reason why you and I click. If you don't get started, you will never get to the end. 
Right. I think it's not. I think this is perfect timing for us to get started, so that we can do that. How many thousand houses that tiny houses we can build? How many yep. corporate companies can we open? How many communities can? Because the people are there. Because everybody yeah, at these shows, like where Mama Az was, she, when she was there, had twenty two beds. There were twenty people when she was there. That, man, that's like four. That's less. I mean, you can have a community of three or four people, three or four yeah. households. So essentially, now I'm thinking uh, by the end of the year of 2018 that we have those three shifts of people. Twenty. What nine times three is twenty-seven. Yeah. And it, they're all every eight hours. They're cranking out something. Yep. Putting a tiny house together isn't rocket science. Yeah. But if you've got, but, um, and most of these people that are doing tiny house, matter of fact, Viata, the people that, uh, the guy that uh, built your tiny house, he's got it himself, and he's got, what, a crew of how many people? Um, Maybe two, right? Uh, the last time I checked, he has two people working with him. Yeah, see that's eight hours. Yeah, that's yeah, that's not enough people. You got to you got to crank it out. You got to crank it you out. Gotta, he can sit you gotta back think, and do, Yeah, go ahead, please. You got to think about a larger picture than just the block that you live on. Right. You got to you because the United States is a large country that are needing desperately what we're talking about. Because that was, I was looking at another documentary. I looked at a short part of it. A man and his wife left California, and they was train hopping. And they got to Chicago, and they got off the train on the west side, and they was under a viaduct somewhere, and a truck was making a, a turnaround or something. And both of them got ran over. And they survived. They survived the accident that the truck ran over them. But what if they had had a tiny house program like we're talking about? They never would have been under the viaduct, even though if they hitchhiked from California to Chicago. So that need is prevalent right today. We need to yeah. we need to cut it this years ago. But you and I just met a couple well a couple of years ago. Well, like I say, you got three, nine times three is 27. So you got 24 hours in the day. Yeah. So with, with, with three shifts, um, that that's the key. If we got three shifts of people, with three shifts, uh, and you got a team of 27, it shouldn't be yeah. any problem to reach that, 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 um, that, that goal of um, five hours five a day. day. No, no. Because that we, we see, but what we want to keep open is the door. That when people start to hear the value of what you're doing and the benefit that they receive, they will be lined up. Look at how they were lined up to buy stuff for Christmas in practically right. every city because they had never seen anything like this. And when you do something of this magnitude, we're going to have more people than we can accommodate. 
I can guarantee you. Well, like if, if more... you took out an ad on Craigslist right now, I'm sure but within 24 hours or less, because I've, I've used Craigslist like this before, you're going to have 150, 200 people that have money ready right now for a turnkey situation to move Yeah. In. Yeah. Okay. Let's say we cranked out five a day, five times five, that's 25 houses a week, um, 100 houses a month. And let's say we kept that yeah. ad going. It, there's no way, like you said, we're going to be able to accommodate. That's okay. As long as we have a quality product, five quality products a day, or one yeah. to five, that's our goal. But it, it's, yeah, we're going to have yeah, three one-hour shifts. We're going to start off with, when I go out there, me by myself, but I'll be, we'll get it. Like I say, within, I'm looking at six months now, six months or less to get up to that cruise, or three crews every, uh, three crews going around the clock. And look at look at how the modification will actually be developed. Those people that we're talking about, some of us have have some parts of some money that they're gonna they're gonna make the investment into their own tiny house. Mm-hmm. Then the, when we write the program out, they will have to help help build some more tiny houses in that community. Because look at California today. They are in need of tiny housing because of the fire that they've had. Let's look at let's look at uh, uh, jo- uh, Texas. They are in need of tiny housing because they have got uh, uh, hurricanes have wiped them out. Let's look at parts of Florida. They are in need of tiny housing. Uh, jo- uh, Alabama, not Alabama. But uh, well, the, the whole the across the entire United States is need of. I, I, man, I say here's a good barometer. In any city, aside, well, I'll take Washington D.C. because I know that's best. In Washington D.C., matter of fact, two uh, places in D.C. Washington D.C. and Landlord Tenant Court, which is rent court, there, mm-hmm. they have about five thousand people a month that are in there fighting evictions. Okay. And Prince George's County, which is right outside of D.C., Prince George's County, Maryland, they have anywhere from eleven to 13,000 eviction cases per month. Yeah. Okay. Those are all people who need affordable housing. All right. So the need, the, the need is there. Uh, and, but here's the thing. In a place like D.C., or, Chicago, or not Chicago, in Cleveland County, for the most part, um, you're not going to get anything tiny legally in there, not in the foreseeable future. So we're, we're put, we'll be putting this stuff up in places where people can actually do it. So, um, all right, well, anyway, it's Friday. Monday we're on, this is podcast 999 of It's My House. Monday we'll hit 1,000. And we, I hope we will have Melvin Harrison uh, to talk about what he did in Texas again. Plus, we're going to have him break down the cost. Because that's where we're out now, because we may as well start figuring out right, how much it's going to cost per per shift. Uh, and then how we, you know, want to compensate um, 
It would be apprentice. It would be a combination, I guess, of apprentices, um, people working, working for shelter. Um, you put all the costs behind it because, like I say, it's 24 hours in a day. It's just like a taxi cab. Cab drivers yep. get cabs, get retired, but taxis don't get tired. The cars don't get tired. So, um, and we'll stair step it. Now, we're not going to start off doing three shifts, but we start off with getting one house together and then work on, okay, what do we need to do? How many people do getting that team, just like a basketball team or a football team, getting them in sync where um, they have together. Matter of fact, there's another movie. And it's on Netflix now. It's called The Founder. It's about Ray Kroc, uh, the guy who took McDonald's large. He didn't. He didn't start McDonald's, but you see in there how he met the McDonald's brothers, and how he took it into what we know today. But it's one interesting scene um, early in the movie where the brothers were trying to. Uh, matter of fact, it's my favorite part of the movie. The brothers were trying to get their production team organized so they can crank out burgers fast, burgers, shakes, fries, fast as we know it today. So it, it has a scene that illustrates that when they went onto a tennis court and then they, they drew out stations on it. That scene in the movie, I, I, I anticipate that will, that's what we'll be doing in all the places that we, we set up. Well, at least Oklahoma to start. But it's on Netflix. Netflix is called The Founder. And because um, that, that's what the McDonald's brothers did. They, they got that system down where you can get a hot, tasty, well, you know, back then, uh, burger. Uh, and they even, what I like about the movie is Hot Shops is already around. But they essentially took the menu from Hot Shops and other burger joints. And he just scaled it down to vanilla shakes, chocolate shakes. I think they had strawberry shakes, hamburgers, cheeseburgers, and fries. That's the original McDonald's menu. And then they had a system, and this is illustrated in the movie when they were on the tennis courts, you know, how to get to, and they got the workers all in sync until they can crank, you place the order, and within 30 seconds or so, you got your meal. 30 seconds to a minute or something like that, you got your meal. That 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 part's in the movie. So I imagine we're going to have to do that on the ground. There's only, like I say, there's only so much we can do in the podcast. You know, so that's, we, the, that's the problem with our, our, our uh, health crisis in America. Too many choices. I remember McDonald's when they first started. We... My uncle used to let us go there and have cheeseburger, hamburger, or fries, or Coke. That was it. Now they've complicated it. they got 20, 50 items on the menu. People don't know what to choose. They don't know how to eat fruit and vegetables to keep their health. So McDonald's and all these other fast food places are, are partially responsible for bringing choices that people just can't handle. They don't know what to choose out of all the dead food. That's why we have such a sick country, because we have all these fast food places so technology, as, as the doctor said this morning on my show, technology is destroying our health. 
We're so we've complicated things. Instead of the kiss, keep it simple, stupid, we got complication Good. with technology and all these choices that make people realize they don't know what to do. And you know what? I'm glad you pointed it out because let's take that back to housing. Okay. A lot of people get into housing that is not simplified. Cause essentially yes, the more gadgets, the more entertain, the entertainment, big screen, all that. Yes, too many, too many choices. Too many choices, but if you, but when, cause when you go to a shelter, here's your bunk. Okay, here's your bed. Right. The toilet's that way, and in right. the morning the kitchen's that way. Right. And if we if we got oatmeal or cereal, you can take it or leave it. Yeah, and then they so build these McMansions where right. you got you got five or six closets, and you think, well, I better fill these closets up with all my stuff. And then when you die, somebody has to get rid of all that stuff. Oh, crazy. You're absolutely right. We're, this is, and see, that's the type of thing that needs to be taught. Simplify your life and keep it simplified. Yeah, uh, because especially like, the older we get. There's no reason as yeah. we get older that we should be having the same stuff we had when we were 20 and 30 years old. By the, by the time we yeah. reach our 60s, 70s, 80s, we ought to be letting go of that stuff because some, otherwise somebody else is going to have to do it for us. You know what, that's, that's how people end up in the pool house. Because let's say they get to McMansion, but then they got to get the car, the BMW or Mercedes, to go with the McMansion. Oh, wait a minute. Now we got to get the wardrobe. Now we got to get the, the furniture, the goat. And then little bit by little bit, all that stuff, you end up ass out. Well, and I see it every time I go to my father's house. His wife is 70. He's 93. And this house is full of stuff. And I told my sister, if either one of them passes, we'll have, we'll take us a whole year to get rid of that stuff in that house. So they're not seeing especially his wife, she's not seeing that it's time to let go of stuff, not keep keeping it in the basement, piling it up, and that's what's happening in his house. So we ought to take lessons from that and start getting rid of our stuff. Once we get Social Security, I think that's like the marker. Start getting rid of your stuff because you should be traveling and enjoying life, not, not taking care and maintaining your big house and all your stuff. That's how I see it. Pleasant, you were saying? You're talking about me. I'm talking about us. I'm I'm a senior citizen too, and I had believe me, I'm leading the way because I had to get rid of a lot of stuff, and it took two years to do that. So I'm just helping everybody think that way. I've 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 helped. I've cleaned up two uh, people's dead, two uh, retired or expired. When two people died in my life, and I had to go and clean out their kitchen and their house, and that was like a real chore. I thought, oh, I don't want to ever be like this where somebody has to come clean out all my stuff. We we need to do that now while we're still That's living right. and breathing. And then That's go right. traveling. That's My whole point of being in a tiny house is I can travel now more. I don't have to worry about maintenance and all the expenses I had when I was married and younger. Now I can travel more. There are places I want to see now. I don't, I don't want to just be stuck in my house maintaining all my stuff. So we all need to be thinking that way, and we need to lead the way for the young people so they don't make the same mistakes. Well, they've That's already correct. made it because if you go, if you're in the car, let's say, you take, let's go back to Harvard University or Harvard University or any university, if you took out those student loans 
and you're, you're not even 21 yet. So you're stuck with like $100,000 worth of debt before you're even 21. I'm not going to bring in transportation or people get married. So the way the American economy is set up, which is based on debt, they were, age is really not a factor anymore. Anyway, you were saying, and, and yes, um, President, you you're the leader in this too because you've been through a heart attack and you've been the death of a child and all the things my dad went through. Same thing my dad went through, and he doesn't have a lot of choices to make because his wife is running things. But you and I and all these seniors, we have to make the the hard decisions so that the youth can make changes in their life to prevent the mistakes that we have made. So yes, you the heart attack is a big lesson. A big lesson to let go of stuff and do all other things that the spirit leads us to do, but yeah, we we have to make these choices for the next generation. That's correct because I got my my housekeeper now cleaning out my closet. Yes, that's Clean. what we have to do. Cleaning them out, and then we go around the country t- t- teaching people how to minimalize and 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 uh, detox their lives. That's what we need to, because the senior citizens, the older generation has to lead the way. We have to take better care of ourselves so that the younger ones can see what a good example we're setting, and then we teach them how to live a, a simpler and a healthier life. That's correct. That's correct. You know, let me give you a little bit of story about Christmas past Christmas. My wife and I, we was, uh, on, we was going, uh, that Sunday, we was, my, my son was taking us out to dinner. To my wife and I, we said, "What are you? What are you going to wear, please?" I said, "I don't know, baby." She says, "Well, come to the house to see what's in there." Because you. So in 1970, listen to this. 19, my birth, my children bought me about four suits, and I wore two or three of them. But while she was cleaning out the closet, here's a red suit in the back of the closet that I had forgotten that we had. So she threw it on the bed and said, well, try this suit on. And I had that suit in 1970. And I put it on, and it fit me perfect. Can you imagine having clothes that you've never worn that length of time? Oh, yeah. People do it all the time. And that's because I had too many clothes. In the closet. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Two clothes in the closet. My and my I stepmother said, used to tell us, if you haven't worn clothes in a year, you need to get rid of them. That's yeah, how you I, maintain a, a a reasonable closet space, <laughs> a reasonable closet uh, clothing uh, supply. Is you get rid of things every year, and then you you don't keep. Stuff you're not going to wear. If you haven't worn it in a year, is it is it possible <laughs> you're going to dig it out and for 20 years, 30 years later and wear it? It's probably outdated a little bit. <laughs> well, luckily, luckily it wasn't out. Luckily it wasn't outdated because the pockets were still sewn up on the suit. And mm-hmm. when I when I'm my hand in the pocket, I couldn't get my hand in the pocket. I said, "What's wrong with this suit? I don't have any pockets to it." She said, no, it's sold up. Like, oh, know, wow. You never wore it then. No, I never wore it. Never wore it. I had forgotten it was there. 
Yeah, red is kind like, of an out. Uh, you don't see too many men in red suit. That's bold. <laughs> well, you know, I tell those stories because I tell people I've got the bounce cards to prove what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And I've had the heart attack, like you just mentioned a few moments ago. I've had the heart attack because the doctors told me I'd worked myself to death. You came, you came to the factory. I had worked myself literally to where my heart wasn't pumping the way it should. Down at, I think mm-hmm. morning, mm-hmm. my heart. Was like, and you know, we were, I was, I think I mentioned that this morning, or sometimes cortisol. When you're under that much stress, your your adrenal glands are constantly pumping out cortisol, which is a hormone that says you're under. Uh, fight! You're in fight and flight mode. You can, you're not resting. You're not giving your body a rest. So your your adrenal glands are the ones that are going to get exhausted. When they get exhausted, the cortisol can't even protect you from all the work that you're doing. And then, and then the heart. Guess what? The heart has to start working harder, and then you wear out the heart. So that's why it's important for us to maintain balance in our lives when we're under too much stress. So for one person that understands what you're talking about, I am that one person that you're that you're talking to that yeah. know what you're talking about because I've got the balance cards to prove it because I just had open heart surgery. And I am an uh, uh, I I think well I have a lot of ideas, but I'm not gonna do that work anymore. Yeah, I closed Great. I closed I closed the factory a little over a year ago. But mm-hmm. the work that I was I'm not doing it anymore. Somebody else could do it. Right, right. Those are the choices we make as we get older. I had to practically close down my cleaning business because I had to do, like you, I had to do all the work. I couldn't keep a partner because they couldn't handle it. Like I And then my adrenal glands were talking to me saying, no, you can't keep this pace up very long. We're going to be totally exhausted. And I had to say, okay, do I want the money more? Do I want to save my adrenal glands? So I cut out most of my clients. I do three clients a month now. That's, and that's just exercise another, um, for me. We're going to have to review my- the book, The E um, The E Myth, because uh, Michael Gerber, he wrote a book called The E Myth Revisited. I played some clips of it last year, but he was a big fan of McDonald's and Ray Kroc and business systems. Um. Because in order to crank out consistently one to five houses a day, particularly let's let's say five houses a day, you, you, a car. Well, I'll give you a good example, and I, I think I mentioned this on this podcast before. Right here at the house I'm at right now, the regular air conditioner guy we have, um, he had a stroke one year, and he works by himself. He's got his own truck, and he. He installs air conditioners. He serves air conditioners. He doesn't have any workers, co-workers, no partners, or nothing like that. And, you know, this works for him because he's made a career. Now, but when he had the stroke, he couldn't, he needed a new air conditioner, central unit at the time, so he recommended another guy. Well, this other guy works with four other people. It's a five-man team. So that morning they came here, it was five of them, and they took the unit off the truck, and then two of them and drove away, and that left three here 
and uh, one of the three left after a little bit and caught up with the first two that left. So I was talking to the guy because I was interested in HVAC at the time. This was before I got in the soul. And because um, I was even taking classes at the community college for HVAC. Well, I was doing it up north at the time. So long story short, he told me they installed five air conditioning units a day. That's what they, they don't do any servicing or nothing like that. They just do installs five a day. Now, they made 5000 off of this house that day. So multiply that times five, the four others, they were making $25,000 a day. Which nets out to um, you know five thousand dollars a man. They were doing that five days a week, so you can actually earn more money working as a team than working as an individual. Now, Michael, I'm saying all that to say this: Michael Gerber in his book, The E Myth, and with relation to McDonald's, he says you want to work on your business. That means you don't want to do any physical work. You just want to make sure that the work gets done. And that way, if you organize a system, and that's what we're going to have to do with what we're talking about next year, with the, the, the one to five hours a day, you're going to have to organize teams based on the system of business. Because if you look at a business, a true business, you don't, the actual business owner doesn't actually work in it. Like a McDonald's, and this goes back to the book, The Email, he was saying with McDonald's, the system is so sound with that, teenagers can run it. And if you go to McDonald's, what do you see there? At McDonald's now, you see, at least in the United States, you see, you still see teenagers, 15, 16, 17-year-olds. And in some places, you see, particularly on the morning shift, you see foreigners that a lot of them don't, are not even fluent in English. So we're going to take a look at that, that book, the email, and then cause yeah, we, one of the biggest challenges going. LA will be finding people to do the work. That that's where uh, President and I had to recognize that people were not mm-hmm. willing to work. We had to do the work, so we had to back off and say, "Wait a minute, I'm not doing all the work." Now we have to find the people who have that work ethic and that willingness. Uh, to do the work and with character and integrity and all that. So that has to start like now, immediately, start finding people with the right attitude. Well, the people that, well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because if you go, let's let's go back to the shelters, where at the Salvation Army, um, what I've done in the past and what people do on a regular, matter of fact, major builders do it too. They'll go by a shelter and get a day labor crew. Now, a day labor crew, if you use day labor, you can save 80% of your labor costs right there just by using day labor. you got to pay them in cash at the end of the day, but you're saving 80% as you add them instead of a regular employee. You don't have to pay the insurances and all this other stuff. So you get your day Yeah, and that labor. was one of the biggest and challenges the in my labor. social capital group is, all these people that the contractor was hiring, you know, here and there and everywhere and paying them by cash and all that, they weren't very dependable. So, again, it's going to be a challenge 
to find that's the right true. people who are especially going to stay with you long that. term. You're, you're right about short term help, but we have to start well, looking the, the at people who are going to be in it for the long haul. The short term help, you can crank out six five hours a day with the short term help, because with day labor, the majority of them are not going to come back the next day. The majority of them. I would say if you hire 10 people on a day labor crew, five of them are not going to come back. Five are going to be, five are going to be, they're going to take that $100 and some take it to eat, some save it, some people drink and drug with it. They're not going to come back. We know that. But we got the, we got the one to five houses out of them that day. And then the next day, you go back to the same shelter and get another five or ten people. It's another let me add, five people. Let me, let me add something to what you just said. You know, you can buy those tiny houses at, at uh, Menards. Yeah, yeah, you, you yeah, can you buy, buy the shell. That's what we're going to do. You can buy the shell of a tiny house at Menards, and all you have to do is just complete your complete building on it. And... Yeah, I, you know, when you said five houses, I, I was looking at how fast you can do a completion of that shell, that Menard shell. You can you can do a completion of that shell in, I would say, two, three hours with four That's people. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I yeah. don't care. You look, as long as I get a completed project out of somebody, then hell, you don't have to show me. I don't even see you ever again in life. Cause I'm gonna go right back where I, the other where I picked you up this morning, and get me another five. Cause there's always a in the United States, as long as the United States is a debt-ridden country, the people have an addiction. There's gonna be a never-ending supply of people at the Salvation Army or at church begging pastors. Can you help me out? It's a never-ending supply of land. I only need you for a day. The only person that needs to be consistent is me. That's it. I, I would, I would just On that note, mm-hmm. you were saying pleasant? I was just thinking about how many houses when you were talking about one to five. It'll be easy to put up five houses today. Yeah, actually, you can go bigger, but I'm going to just keep it to one to five. <laughs> yeah. Because like you said, once you buy the skeleton, okay, and like you said, within, I'm going to say at the extreme, four to five hours. At the extreme. Because yeah. right, here, here's two things that we're not doing that a regular house would do. Okay. if you This is where people, a lot of people with the tiny house movement get caught up. If you call it a house, then you gotta bring you gotta use the, the building codes, the local building codes. Which means you got to have an electrician wire it. Okay? You gotta have a plumber come in and do the plumbing. Now on the electrical part, we're going solar. So I can yeah. plug and play system for that. And everything's wireless. So yeah. I, I don't need an electrician for that. I can get a first grader to do that. All right, let me up it up. I get a third grader. Look, man, here's a screwdriver. Here's how you put these lights up. A third grader can do that. 
and we're going to do a video on that using third to fifth graders. And with the toilet thing, I get, but on the beginning of this podcast, I get a, a unit for $65 or $100, let's say, in a solar shower, had that installed. So we're talking about we'll have, like, two people, you guys in charge of the bathroom. All you do is pick this up and put it in this when they complete what they do. And I agree with you, Pleasant. Within about three, four hours. Yeah. And I was sitting here, complete. sitting here doing some figuring while you were talking. And I'm saying, wait a minute. It don't take all day to do no do a yeah, show. It don't take eight hours to put together a show. No. No. And it's not that expensive. Because no. look at the climate. Look at the climate that you're going to be building in. That you take in consideration the climate that you're building in, and uh, and with the solar energy, what was that other uh, video that you played about how much solar energy cost that man? Oh, I he, think he had a him. three thousand dollar unit. He had a three. As a matter yeah. of fact, that unit which I bought and, and helped people install, and then when I went for a month, I was really able to use them in, in, in that unit. You go to what's that place called? Um, Ah, it's all over the country too. Um, I swear it on tip my tongue. There's a I'll remember it probably after the podcast, but I I had to. There's a place you can go to that you can get that unit and buy it in a box. It's just it's really just good for lights. And you pay. Well, I forgot how much the price is probably down now. He paid three thousand. You might be able to yeah, get it for like two thousand or even a thousand dollars now. That's right. That's right. Harbor Freight. So, That's the name of the place. Harbor matter of fact, let me go on the internet right now. Harbor Freight. Let me see. Harbor Freight. Let's see. Harbor Freight. Um and they're all over the country. Harbor Freight solar panels. All right. Um, Harbor Freight solar panels, $189.99. You know what I'm talking about? That'll give you your life. Now, you won't be able to do. You won't be able to do your, your laptop computer or microwave stove, but you can get trucking technology, camping technology, get a 12-volt system for that, independent. But for lights, if you get it from Harbor Freight, $189, less than $200. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know when we put all, like you say, the cookie cutter together, it's going to come together so fast, it's going to be incredible. It really is. Yeah, that, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about getting getting cookie cutters. Uh, yeah. That's the only way this. It, it's it, it, I'm not a carpenter, okay. And I, you, you just need, you know what? Really, you just need one good handyman that's got a little carpentry skills, and then you get your unskilled labor to look. You. You do it this way, you, you know. Drywall this way. You install the, the, uh, the uh, what do you call it? Insulation this way. 
You know, you just yeah. need one skilled person, and then you get your team players. And then, like I say, if you use day labor, where you're going to save 80% of your cost. Now, you can save 100% of out-of-pocket labor costs because, as me and you pleasant agree, that if they're staying yeah. there, all right, you know, the other, you're giving them you know, a the roof other, over their head, and you're giving them food to eat. Yeah, you know, the other part I like about what you're talking about is that the extension of, of the tiny house, you can take either end and extend the, that that room to, oh, 12 or 14 feet. You don't, you don't have to just go with what they got. You can tank, take it and take uh, one end of it off, or uh, side of it off, and extend it by joining them together. So there's so many ways and so easy to do until I think the conversation that we are having with Beata and yourself, I think they're right on mark, right on the mark, so that we can get this thing up and running before you know it. And all these are going to be portable buildings, so see, you don't, you don't have to pour no no slab and let it wait and sit and all this other stuff. So we're talking about, uh-huh. like I say, get the shell. That's going to save you a considerable amount of time right there. Now, you can have another yeah. team as we get going, you know, as we get that system going, the cookie cutter system going. We can have another team put together shells our own self, because when we get to that level, then we'll be saving and making more money, too. Well, you, the way you break those crews up is that you got an insulation crew. They'll go in. Then the drywall crew, they'll go in. Whether it be two, three, or four just doing that, you got a roofing crew. They'll go in, do their job. you got the solar panels. They'll go in and set it up to where they got Turnkey operation. Yeah. Or you can have a shell crew, and all they do is they put together the shell. Yeah. A, a floor, right. the, the sides, and a and roof. The roof. Yeah. You just have a crew that's that's working on working on the shell. That's all they do is they work on the shell. Then they have another crew. Matter of fact, well, let's say let's say we got three teams working around the clock. One, uh-huh. one eight-hour shift, all they do is they put together the shells. That's it. Yeah. Then you have another eight-hour crew. Uh, actually, the two other eight-hour crews basically work to fill in the shells. Mm-hmm. And then I would take somebody off of one of those crews and essentially, then you want to because you want to get you want to get rid of a finished product. Marketing, oh, yeah, but, crew, yeah, and that could be that could be one to three people. Just like when you go to one of these new subdivisions, and they got one uh-huh. house that's a model, and they typically right. have one one typically one person, typically a white girl, sitting there taking your name, phone number, and then oh well, we have one model. There's a whole big lot. There ain't nothing on it but dirt. But they got one house yeah. built. And she works nine to five. That's it for her. That's, That's right. Her 
this is going to be a lot of fun. You know that? This is going to be a oh, lot yeah. of fun. I, well, I, know, I know we're going to hit six, I mean, five hours a day within six oh, months. Yeah. I, I know it. I know we're oh, going to yeah. hit it. So we just have to uh, listen, guys, I got to hang up, but you guys be safe New Year's Eve, and I'll talk to you next year. All right, see you then. Right, you. Shalom, All right, uh, blessings, love. When you Bye. come to Chicago, you holler at me. All right, I will. Thanks. Love you all. Bye. Okay. All right. Thanks. So, um, yeah, that's, you know what? Um, let's see, Monday. Oh, plus, I'm going to call you this weekend because I can't wait till Monday. <laughs> Monday, <laughs> we'll have to, uh, hopefully we'll have the guy Melvin Harris back. But, yeah, if we can put the cookie cutters back on, me and you to, to discuss the cookie cutters, I'll more than likely call you tomorrow because I got to be shopping today, laundry, and all that stuff. So um, yeah, I'm going to give you a call tomorrow. And we can, because, like, me and you on the same page with this, it don't take eight hours to put fill in the shell. No, uh, no, and, and you know, and, the, and, and you, you know, crew. you don't even not, you don't even need nine people to do that. You can knock that off. No. You're filling the shovel about four or five. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I my assumption is that we'll start with two people. That's enough. So one can hand yeah. the other this. That yeah. two, yeah, two people is enough to start. That could yeah, put together the we'll, we'll build up to that. Yeah. We'll build up. Let's yeah. see how the two works and then get the kinks out of that and just keep on. But tomorrow when I give you a call, we, you know, because, you know, when it comes to installing the bathroom, all right, you already got a, a ready-made toilet and a ready-made shower. Just put it in there. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. It's but two, two bolts and hold it down. Yeah. So, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't, I don't know. Okay, it, it I'm going to give you a call around about, uh, probably about midday tomorrow, I'll give you a call. Then. Okay, Doc. All right, have a good one. Talk to you guys later. Have, everybody have a good rest of the weekend. <laughs>